Hey guys, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime, and today I'm going to be telling you about this app called Anchor. It helped me start my podcast, and it can help you start yours. Anchor is a free app that lets you use it from your phone or your computer. So if you want to do it on the go, and you want to just record, you can record one. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more to get your own podcast out there. You can make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you want in just one podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I did. What are you waiting for? Hey guys, welcome back to Just a Girl on True Crime. I'm your host, Heaven. And tonight, by the time you guys listen to this, we will be in our first week of November already. That means, unfortunately, spooky season's over. Time for turkey. And to wrap it up, I want to do one last, you know, urban legends um, and everything for this month. So we're going to be talking, I think I said seven. And we're going to get started. So the first one, obviously, is a bridge called Hell's Gate in Oxford, Alabama. And we're just going to jump right into it, okay? This bridge has earned this name because it is said that if you stop on the bridge and turn around, the road behind you looks like the fiery gates of hell. Many years ago, a young couple lost their lives on this bridge. On a dark night, if you stop on the bridge and turn all the lights off, a member of the couple will get into the vehicle with you, leaving a wet spot on the seat. No thank you. The bridge was officially closed to traffic in late 2005, early 2006, when the new road that is now known as Leon Smith Parkway was built from Friendship Road to the Oxford Exchange, connecting it to the new outdoor mall. On Saturday, January 13, 2007, the OPS team decided to go to this bridge and investigate the claims. When we arrived at the site around 10 p.m. and placed voice recorders on each end of the bridge, and in the middle, we set up a webcam suited for night viewing, and took and took lots of pictures with the digital and 35mm cameras. We wrapped up our investigation sometime after midnight. Going through the evidence, we did not detect anything that night. One of the members did see an object, an object coming toward the group while we were sitting on one end of the bridge, and it was an armadillo. It chased us back to the other end where we dived off the bridge to escape. I mean, same. I would did it. We are starting to see a common theme with us and animals. Haven't figured out what that means yet, but visit us for more. And they just got, like, some pictures and everything. And then, like, in their one picture, this group of guys went back. They returned to the bridge and this photo was taken. They say like behind them there's either like a dust particle or an orb producing its own light. And they say, you know what, you can be the judge of it. We don't know what it is. And 
Yeah, so there's like a couple photos, and they have the photos of the bridge and stuff like that. Give me one second. Okay, and then I found another article about the horrors of the Hell's Gate Bridge. So, basically saying if you're making a trip to the public supermarket or the Home Depot at the Oxford Common Shopping Center in Alabama, there are easier and safer ways to get by, get there by then crossing, by crossing Hell's Gate Bridge. Heck, if you didn't know what to look for, you'd likely never find it. Even though it lies not a half a mile away from the Oxford Commons, the small broken down bridge sits tucked away in the woods at a creek crossing no one dares to use anymore. To be fair, if you couldn't, you couldn't use it even if you wanted to. It's been blocked at either end with cement blocks and a chain link fence to prevent anyone from setting a foot on it because it's literally falling apart but if you wanted to is the key phrase there no one truly wants to use Hellgate's bridge it's too haunted for that so i'm guessing like the first article i read they went there before but i'm not sure so like i said that's obviously not the official name um The bridge, it bridges the banks of the creek, or at least it did once, and it's been disused for at least a decade because of its ter terrible condition. Oh, yeah, they have a lot of bridges in this one that I wasn't going to do. Okay, so it's really unclear, you know, how it got its thing, but, you know, it's there. Um, here's another story. Oh, no, we read the fiery gates. So here's a little bit more to the story. Um, you know, like backstory, you drive, you stop, you look behind, you see fiery gates. Admittedly, there doesn't seem to be much connection between this tale and the ill-fated lovers. But then again, maybe we were just having to put two and two together yet. Maybe this is why they lost control of their vehicle in the first place. Perhaps they glanced behind them and saw hell itself, receiving such a fright they accidentally drove straight off the bridge. Again, we really don't know what the stories are, where they came from, where they arose. The car crash legend in particular seems, su seems suspect. As far as I know, there's no actual record of a car actually driving off the bridge, let alone anyone dying as a result. But this person did say they do find it interesting that Hell's Gate Bridge's car crash legend bears more, um, bears more than a few similarities to other pervasive urban legend of the Crybaby Bridge. I don't know what that is, but they have it in here so we can talk about it. So numerous so-called Crybaby Bridge exist across the United States. Each has their own backstory. 
but they all tend to involve a terrible alleged tragedies that resulted in at least one death, thereby turning the bridge into a site of a haunting. These hauntings are so are also all generally said to manifest in pretty much the same way. If you park your car on one of these crybaby bridges, the story goes something strange will happen to you or either to your vehicle. You might hear a baby crying in the distance or a young mother wailing for the loss of her child. You see a glow of a lantern as the ghostly mother searches for her young one. You might even spot footsteps, handprints on the windows, trunk, or hood of your car. Sometimes other actions must be taken simply um, by parking your car in order to inspire the spirits to make themselves known, scattering baby powder across your hood of your car, for example, or turning off the headlights. The deadly crash story pegged from Hell's Gate Bridge and this, like I said, did contain did contain similar, you know, kind of stories. A terrible tragedy, an ultimate death. Um, and an alleged haunting, which reveals itself if you park your car on the bridge and turn off all the lights. True, there's no baby involved, but crybaby bridges don't always play host to literal babies. And then they talk about a the Monday Hughes Road Bridge in Liberty Township, Ohio. For example, this one is to replay the memory of a fatal lover's quarrel night after night. Or if you prefer a different legend associated with the same spot, to play back a horrible train accident that happened nearby. And then there's other bridges they say... But with all of them in mind, um, Hell's Gate is like a likely candidate for con- in conclusion in the crybaby bridge folkloric type thing. But like I said, you can't drive past it. And that's Hellgate's bridge, guys. And Crybaby's bridge, I guess. Now we're going to talk about the lady, I'm sorry, we're going to talk about the legend of the lady, the white lady's lane. And this is just like a small article that I found in the, um, Revunist region, North Dakota. All right, so, once ago, not so far away, lived a young, a lovely young maiden named Anna Story. She and her mother and the rest of their family lived in a little shack by the railroad tracks close to Leyden. That's how I'm going to pronounce it because it sounds like my son's name that I'm not going to say on my podcast. About the same time, there lived a Syrian peddler by the name of Sam Kali. I'll go with it. Who rode around the countryside selling from his wagon load of pots pans and household items he warned he wanted to marry the beautiful anna but her mother would have none of it but she did have a eye for a good deal so she told the peddler to come back when anna was 16 and then he could have her hand in marriage 
if in the meantime she could help herself to his, you know, wares. All the stuff he carried in his wagon. He agreed to this condition and returned in a year's t time to fulfill the bargain and have Anna for his wife. When he came for the girl, the mother refused and offered, and offered him the door. In his anger at being unable to have the young hand of Anna, he pushed his way past the mother and shot Anna dead in her night clothes. Oh. <clears throat> the mother tried to intercept, but Sam then shot her in the face. The bullet breaking her jaw. Other members of Anna's family jumped out the window and ran to a neighbor's home for help. Meanwhile, the peddler, after having shot Anna and her mother, pulled his pistol on himself in an attempt to take his own life as it was not a as it was not a quality firearm and in fact he was probably something he it was probably something he sold from his wagon it failed to fire and the disgusted old man threw it on the floor she bent i'm sorry still bent Doing away with himself, he drew his rusty old pocket knife from his overalls pocket and tried to slit his throat. Well, that being harder to do than he initially thought, along with the fact that his knife was not very sharp. He failed in his second attempt to do the dastardly deed. About this time, the authorities came on the scene and the peddler gave himself up without a fight. Sam was sentenced to life in prison in the state penitentiary penitentiary in Bismarck, but was released about 10 years later at the age of 71 to relatives in Minnesota. The mother lived on to tell the tale. Wow. Although she had a dent in her lower, um, you know, jaw where she was shot all her days, not, not so for young Anna. She laid quiet and cold on the ground, or did she? Dear sweet Anna, torn down in the peak of her youth and blossom, was not ready to be dead. And so she walks, they say, every Halloween night near a misty bog called Eddie's Bridge. Her white flannel nightgown flown out behind her slender frame, looking, searching for, for an eternity, for the peace and death that she did not find in life. And thus ends the legend of the white, the legend of White Lady's Lane. Ooh, that's crazy. Now we are going to be talking about the hundred step the hundred steps cemetery. Sounds exciting, right? There are places all over, all over the world that spawn urban legends. One such place is in a small town of Brazil, Indiana. At the Hundred Step Cemetery. The cemetery house's headstones are dated back to the 1860s, but that isn't why the graveyard is known. Inside the cemetery, there are 100 cracked and decaying steps that lead up to a hill in an open field. Totally fine, totally normal. 
Legend has it that if you dare to enter the cemetery on a dark midnight evening and climb the old steps, counting them as you go up, when you reach the top and face the field of stones, an apparition of the first undertaker will appear. Without saying a single word, the ghost will show you a vision of your death and then vanishing, leaving you alone. Oh, hell no. Oof. That gave me chills. <laughs> you are then supposed to go back the way you came, counting the stone steps. But if you get to a different number than what you got going up, you will die as the version played for you. Oh, man. If you count the same number, then you are safe. But, you know, it was just a false prophecy. That's what they say. And this one, another legend goes that if you try and trick the Undertaker by walking in the grass next to the stone steps, an invisible force will knock you on the ground. Claims say that they feel a hand shoving them, and then a large red handprint can be seen for days on their body. They say that this is the mark of the devil himself. Wow. And then there is a story. There's also a story about the 100 Step Cemetery that was reported in the Indianapolis Journal on November 20th in 1982. And this tale states that the body of George West's daughter, who was at the cemetery, you know, she was um taken to... She was taken from her grave. Mr. West had the body exhumed to move it to another location, but was horrified to find that her coffin was upside down in the ground and the body of his daughter's of his daughter was missing. Nobody's really sure where or how this legend started, since there was never more than sixty stone steps leading up to the field. And this legend is reported to go back as far as 1982. So, I mean, we can go there. We all can go there if you want. I mean, that sounds kind of interesting. I don't, maybe if, um, maybe if you like, the more you go up, the more steps appear. I don't know. I'm just trying to make sense of it, I guess. But I guess that's why it's called an urban legend. Next, we are going to be talking about um, the Knock Knock Road on in Michigan. I'm sorry, not on. This is a little, a little crazy. All right. So like many states, Michigan has a haunted road among its collection of odd and unusual legends. And it's called... Knock Knock Road. So, name for what you'll allegedly experience. You should drive down it at night. Go figure. A strange knocking sound on your car, supposedly to indicate that a soul who lost their life on that stretch of road many, many years ago is still among us. Not already liking this one, guys. There's just one problem. No one is really sure exactly where Knock Knock Road is. The location of this allegedly haunted road changes depending on who you talk to or which version of the story you tell. Alright. 
In that sense, the story of Knock Knock Road is a good old-fashioned urban legend. Although if you start looking deeply enough, it turns out to be quite a bit more complicated than that too. Because we are talking about Knock Knock Road, we're just not going to be talking about one legend. Surprise! We're going to be talking about several, each to its own unique tale. Let's take a drive, shall we? So the current prevailing Knock Knock Road story was documented in and in all likelihood um, by a by the book Weird Michigan. I'm sorry. Let me redo that. Um, the book, the 2006 book, Weird Michigan, and it takes place in Detroit. In the chapter, Roads Less Traveled, Knock Knock Road is identified as Strasburg Road. Just south of, I see, I read seven mile and then I read eight mile. So one of them in the Poleski Osborne Van Steuben area of the city, which tells a tragic, which tells a tragic tale of a little girl wheeling joyfully down the sidewalk on her new bicycle on a hot summer day, who upon accidentally veering down a driveway, and on into the busy traffic on Strasburg, it um she is struck and killed by a careless driver but although her body is carefully removed and laid to rest the story goes her spirit never leaves the scene instead spending her endless nights approaching the cars on Strasburg and knocking on their doors to see if they might conceal the driver who ended her short life it's not clear what she plans on doing if she ever locates the driver, whether she's asking for help or whether she simply wants to hold them accountable or whether she intends to avenge herself remains unknown. Ever since, you know, that happened, it has been in Strasbourg, it has been favored, it has been a favored cruising spot for thrill-seeking teens. And the story continues. If you drive down the road at night, in the right time, under the right circumstances, it's said that you will hear or feel something knocking on the undercarriage or body of your vehicle. An experience attributed to the little girl's restless spirits. This version of the legend you'll find in most accounts and generally one of the most complete versions you'll find. This story, though, tends to have nothing more then it's then the barest of details, no matter who tells it, it's pretty much just an outline relying on your own imagination to fill in the gaps. However, this isn't the only story attached to Detroit's Knock Knock Road. In the Weird Michigan book, it even includes two accounts of this second secondary tale in the literal margins of the book's entry. On the alleged haunted road in it, the victims, plural, are a bunch of kids in a car driving recklessly down Strasburg, and they end up hitting a pole head-on as a result of their carelessness. The, ten the teens are said to have gotten struck in the crashed car, unable to escape after it caught fire. As they burn, they pound on the windows, trying to get out with no avail. 
now continues the account which was collected from some from someone credited only as Valerie S. Whenever you drive down the street, you can hear them knocking and pounding on your doors, yelling and screaming for help. Someone named Ali Marco further noted that the effects traveling on Knock Knock Road in retaliation to the second story are meant to have you on your car is most reliable when you're going the exact same speed those kids were going when they veered off the road, which was 76 miles per hour. This is obviously quite a different tale than the bicycle accident story. The ghosts are teen, not a young child. They are positioned at fault for their own demise rather than the victim of an innocent childish mistake and the reckless driving of, a, of an adult. And there's even more of a ritual aspect of the second story than the first one. Namely, the stipulation that you must be driving down the road at this specific speed in order to summon the spirits in question. Both cases, though, are pegged to the same location, which is, in fact, a real location in Detroit. You know what? I always wanted to go to Detroit, guys. But according to some sources, Knock Knock Road isn't in Detroit at all. It is on the island of Grosso La... Lie? I think I butchered that, but I don't know. And that's 35 miles away. And to complicate matters even further, this knock-knock story is entirely different from the other two knock-knock road stories. I kind of want to look it up at some point. Oh, nope, we're going to find it right here. So, a stretch of road with grass on one side and leafy trees on the other. A street sign on a pole to the left reads Strasburg. In the second, I'm sorry, in the third legend that's on a completely thing that I butchered that I'm not going to repeat, a man and a woman are said to have been in a car together at the um, local lover's lane. In some version of the story, the man and the woman are peers. In others, the woman is the babysitter while the man is a father that employs her to look after his own children. In both versions, however, the same basic course of events play out. The man makes advances on the woman, who in turn makes it very clear that the sh that she does not want to do anything with him. The man, furious at not getting what he wants, opens the door, pushes the woman out of the car, slams it shut, and speeds off into the night. Rude. And here is where the already terrible story gets worse. As the tale goes on, the male, I'm sorry, not the male, or yeah, male man, the man doesn't just leave the woman. He tried to assault alone on a dark road in the middle of the night. When he closes the door, you see something of hers, maybe her dress, maybe her hair, gets caught up in it, trapping her against the car itself. And when he drives off, tires squealing, he ends up dragging her body along the road for miles. Oh. Um, and she does not survive. And this is why, according to the version of the legend, 
you might hear someone knocking on your car when you drive down Knock Knock Road at night. It is said to be the spirit of the woman knocking against the car desperately in a bid to get it to stop before she is dragged to death. Similar to the stories, this one is hazy on the details. Again, the relationship relationship between the man and the woman isn't clear. They might be peers, you know, they might be employer and employee. It is also not totally clear on what transpired prior to their arrival at Lover's Lane. Although given that the woman is expressedly not down for whatever the man has in mind, I can think of two plausible scenarios. In the version where the peers, they might have gone out together using the man's car as their primary mode of transportation, and then instead of bringing her home at the end of the night, the man brought the woman to Lover's Lane, likely without her consent. Or in the version where the employer and employee, the man may have offered to give the woman a ride home after she finished looking after his kids, and then again brought her to Lover's Lane, again without her consent. But the list of things I am not clear on about all of the versions of this story does not stop with the lack of detail within the stories. It also extends to bigger picture issues. Take location, for example. What sort of odd about the Detroit stories is that the Strasburg Road identified in them, which is an actual place, isn't technically a road. The location is just south of Seven Mile named Strasburg, to which these two stories have been pegged. It's called Strasburg Street. And yes, while it's true that you occasionally find mention of the legend under the name Knock Knock Street, completed complete with the correct identification of Strasburg as Strasburg Street. The story is most commonly encountered. Form refers to roads in both cases. It's one of those slightly off details that chips away at the story's believability. I actually even have a hard time understanding how Weird Michigan one to print without anyone looking at a dang map to make sure the place of the name was correct. Furthermore, although Detroit stories both center around the same road, which again is a real location in Detroit, the third story I talked about has been assigned to a number of different locations. No one seems to be able to agree where it's meant to have taken place. According to one source, for example, the Lover's Lane in question is a footpath called Ferry Trail. Located between Ferry Road is Island Boulevard. Ferry Trail turns out, turns into a proper road called Gage Avenue and its northern end. And it's on Gage Road that the woman in the story is said to have been dragged. However, according to a different source, the stretch of the road that plays host to the legend is located off Thoroughfare Road within the mile of the Grosse Lay Wildlife Sanctuary, which is a mile or two or three, depending on the route you take, away from Ferry Trail. Furthermore, although Thoroughfare stretches down as far as Ferry Trail does, it doesn't actually intersect the footpath or gauge avenue at any point it only runs parallel to it 
the road leading into the wooden area that is a part of the wildlife sanctuary. To the right, a green wooden side reading wildlife sanctuary. Even the time at which the history behind the legends are meant to have occurred are hazy in cases. The bicycle accident for incident, incident, instance is usually said to have occurred in the 1950s, although occasionally you'll see the 1940s cited instead. In either case, though there doesn't seem to be any documentation of the incident of this variety occurring at any given location at any point during these two decades, for what it's worth, though we do know the story was well established by 1969 per the Wayne State University's folklore, and that's when Dave Spidebrook Dave Bybrook's paper, Ghost Lore from Detroit, which features a different version of the tale, was published. Unfortunately, this person was not able to get a hold of this paper herself, so they really can't tell us more about it. And they said, it's a shame. I'd love to read it. And me, too. Meanwhile, a lot of sources claim that the gross um, story occurred in 1962 and indeed attempt to bloister their claims by stating that at least one Detroit area newspaper, usually the Detroit News, although sometimes the Detroit Free, Pre Free Press covered the incident in the 12 June 12th edition that year. However, none of these stories actually linked to the article itself or even to where you might be able to find it, nor do they include any quotations from the article in question. So, and like the website, Michigan's Other Side, which ex examined the many knock-knock road legends in 2018, they were unable to access more frequently cited Detroit News edition reportedly holding the story. Although some of the resources available to this person do include archives from the Detroit, for the Detroit News. No one, um, not one of them go back as far as 1929. They can only access full text coverage from 2006 onward and citation abstract coverage dating back to the 1989. So we can't verify whether or not the June 12, 1962 edition of that particular outlet actually contains the article. So... Many sources allege it does. To me, this it implies that the sources re relying on its facts to strengthen the story's believability have merely parroted what they've read somewhere else without fact-checking or confirming whether it was true for themselves. However, they can confirm that the source claiming the June 19, I'm sorry, the June 12, 1962 issue of the Detroit Press, free press covered the Love Lane story, are incorrect. This newspaper is available via expansionnewsarchivenewspaper.com, and it does not contain a story about a young mother who was being killed in the manner described by the legend, the one that um, was dragging, woman that was dragged. It only has references to gross itself, anywhere within its pages. It's literally one sentence announcing the results of a school district vote recently held in the township 
gross voters rejected a two million two two million six two point six mil bond issue in a request for three point five mil increase for operation it reads. Um so guys that's you know that's the story of the knock knock road whether they are true or not. We don't know because no one can really, you know, fact check it or anything. So, there's that. Oops. But, hey, you never know. We all could be wrong. So, next we're going to talk about a legend that will make you make your skin crawl. This one's a short one. I'm from Pennsylvania, and I didn't even know this existed, or if it even does exist. But this happened in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Countless bus, countless buses transverse the city of Philadelphia day and night. All have destinations, pickup, and drop-off times, and regular passengers except one. Oh, this um story is called. Bus to nowhere. One bus, according to a local urban legend, has and displays no destination. It has no route number, nor does its unknown route appear on any transportation maps. The SEPTA bus stops for no one, at least anyone with a specific destination in mind. Yet, if you ask some people from Philadelphia, they'll tell you they've seen this bus winding its way through the city streets. Some call it the bus to nowhere, others call it the wandering bus, and for some, it's merely zero. Man, if I have any Philadelphia listeners, can you tell me if this is real? Because, like, that's kind of cool. Despite what you call this bus to nowhere, one thing is certain, it's passengers are those who suffer from an ear incurable hopelessness at the bottom of one of their very worst days in memory. You don't want to suffer the type of despair the, the bus's passengers, but if you do, you must not wait for the bus to slow down to let you on. You must chase after it, and seeing your no de- seeing your desperation to ride this mysterious bus driver a man or a woman no one really knows will slow down and allow you in your despair to enter you look out the window no idea as to a final destination and wrapped in your thoughts desperate only to get far away anywhere from the pain and despair your fellow passengers share the same desire and like you, sit in silence of their thoughts and hope to travel to a destination where their problems no longer exist. Pull the cord when you're ready to disembark. As you step off the bus, you leave your memories of the ride, which could have lasted minutes or years behind. The faces of the bus driver and the passengers, your thoughts and feelings as you watch the landscape pass by, your final destination all wiped from your memory as they find as you finally find yourself where you're supposed to be count yourself lucky if you've never been a passenger on the bus to nowhere 
But if you find yourself in the deep depths, deep depths of despair, wait for the bus to know where to appear. For those at their lowest points can see it. Man, that was short, but pretty good. Next, we're going to talk about a woman called Candy Lady. So, in the early 1900s, in a small rural county in Texas, a missing child was finally found in a ditch, eyes gouged out with a fork. Pocket stuff was sweet, an unsolved mystery at the time. Locals today believe the perpetrator was none other than the mysterious Candy Lady. Over the time or course of a 10-year period near the turn of the 20th century, a number of children went missing. The story spread that the Candy Lady was responsible, luring children to her home with sweets and, you know, then murdering them. It was revealed that several children in the area were walking up to find sweets on their windowsills, fearing that their parents might try and stop whoever or whatever was leaving them candy. They initially told nobody. After a child had been receiving candy for a while, notes started to appear tucked into the sweet wrappers. These notes enticed the children to come and play and were signed, The Candy Lady. As children started going missing, those who received any in sweets from the candy lady finally confessed to their parents. Then a farmer found a sweet wrapper at the edge of one of his open fields. Opening the raptor, the wrapper, he found a child's teeth, black, rotten, and bloody. Ooh. The police investigated, and that's when they found the missing boy with the candy-filled pockets and the gouged-out eyes. To this day, locals say that if a child goes missing, it's because the candy lady got them. They say she lures them away with sweets and punishes them by pulling out their teeth and stabbing them with forks. Ah! I don't like that. Alright. But, so who is this candy lady obviously nobody knows for sure but some have identified the candy lady as clara clara it's clara clara no clara clara crane born in texas in 1871 she married a man called leonard and they had a daughter named marcella and in 1993 marcella was killed in a farming accident her husband was supervising, but had been drinking. Clara became devastated. She became withdrawal and despondent. And she blamed her husband for their daughter's death, which I get because you were supposed to be watching our daughter. Why are you drinking? I get that. Two years later, Carla murdered Leonard with poisoned caramels. She was tried and convicted of the murder, but but found to be suffering from mania and committed to the North Texas Lunatic Asylum. Hmm. There, Carla made a doll out of torn bed sheets, which she would talk and sing to at night, and some had speculated that Clara believed the doll um, was her daughter, Marcella. She certainly came... She certainly came to believe that her daughter was still alive as 
evidenced by letter Carla, Car the can we're just gonna call her the Candy Lady. There's too many C's in here. Candy Lady wrote to her sister Angie, <clears throat> and this is what it says: Dearest Angie, I'm elated. I've informed informed by Doctor Matthews that Marcy and I will be returning home in less than three weeks. As you can imagine, Marcy can barely contain her excitement. Every night she asks, Is it tomorrow the day we can go home, Mother? Very soon, I will be able to tell her, Yes. Our stay here has been somewhat of a trial. Though I have been grateful for the good doctor and his staff and their dedication to our treatment and recovery. Leonard's death has put us in such a severe state, and I fear that we would never escape it. These past years have been more difficult than any in my life. My dear daughter, after all she has to endure, has become my strength, my flame of hope. As mentioned, Candy Lady was released from the hospital in 1999. I'm sorry, 1899. This was due to overcrowding. Even though she committed murder, the fact that she was charming and softly spoken made her a good candidate for release in, back in those days. And because there was no aftercare or supervision back then, nobody really knows where the candy lady ended up. Since it was literally a couple years later that the children near her hometown started to go missing, she was named um, the prime suspect for you know being the candy lady oh man that's crazy you know what she reminds me of um handsome and gretel that like evil witch so let's think like what do we make about this okay so usually fictional and untrue doesn't always mean fictional and untrue at the same time, it's possible that if any children really did go missing in Texas, then someone thought of the Candy Lady story to explain their disappearances. And it's quite probable that they were influenced by the case of Keith in the sweet rapper slash child found dead in a ditch, you know, with the candy filled in the pockets, and Candy Lady poisoning her husband with toffees or caramel. Having said that, I'm not 100% sure, you know, Clara crane was real most websites with information on, on her website are about the candy lady legend and it's impossible to prove that the newspaper article above you know is legit with this single hazy image because they had like a image when i was reading this of like what she did like it said like po clara crane poison or poisons her husband or something like that but it's very like light and grainy um, it doesn't even say what newspaper it is. Um, it was, like, printed in, basically. And they also can't trace the source... The They also can't trace the source of that alleged letter to Angie. That could be made up as well. E there's even less proof of their... Out there of the story of the teeth in the sweet wrapper and the kid in the ditch. This kid and... Candy Lady could easily be, or Clara Crane, could easily be fictional, you know, as the Candy Lady herself. Granted, this creepy story has to have 
come from somewhere, perhaps straight out of someone's imagination during a ghost story, during, you know, around a campfire, or cobbled together from bits and pieces of real events and crimes. What those, what those real crimes were, we might really never know. That's why it's called an urban legend, folks. All right. And these, oh, I think, um, I think that is all of my stories that I have for you guys. Yep, that is all of my stories or urban legends and everything like that. I hope you enjoyed them. If you want to follow me, follow me on Instagram at just the ground true crime. You can send me an email at justagrowntruecrime at gmail.com. You can like the Facebook page at Just the Grown True Crime. You can leave me a review and I can see it on Pod page, I think. Um, what else? Check out the YouTube channel, Just a Grown True Crime. Um I think that's it. Hope you enjoyed this. You guys will be getting this um, November 3rd. And then that Friday. That Friday, the ser next serial killer we are going to be doing is, hold on. We are going to Alaska, and we are going to be covering Robert Hansen. Um, I don't know much about Robin, Robin, not Robin, I'm sorry, Robert Hansen. So, that'll be up for you um, that week. That'll be up for you on the 5th, and this one will be up for you guys on the 3rd. I hope you enjoyed listening, and I will be talking to you guys when you listen. You'll be hearing me later. I'll be talking to you to this mic tomorrow so I can pre-record it. I'm trying to get everything out there and get my Mondays, I'm sorry, my Wednesdays and Fridays up. I can speak. I'm tired. Um, I think that's it. Uh, remember to spread love and not hate, and that's it. I I think I'm done.